have been really excited uh, to be a part of this church family and have, have loved being here. I was a TCU Horn Frog, class of 2000. Go Frogs. Grew up in Plano. Um, went to seminary at Dallas Seminary and, uh, and uh, have been working out at Pine Cove uh, for the past 12 years just prior to coming out here. So uh, really excited to get to speak with you guys tonight and really excited that I get a chance to introduce you guys to the book of 1 Peter. Uh, it's a book that's near and dear to my heart and uh, have been spending a lot of time studying 1 Peter over the years. And I hope that uh, what we talk about tonight is meaningful for you. I hope that it helps you understand uh, your relationship to the world around you. So um, I'm not really uh, much one for, uh, you know, simple, simple talk, so I'd like to just get straight at it. So can we, if you guys want to go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Peter, I'll be there in just a second. But I want to start by telling you a story. One of my hobbies is uh, I, I like to travel. Anybody in here like to travel when you don't have anything to do? Like to, who likes to get out of the country as much as possible? Okay. Uh, so what I've been doing over the past 10 years, I've been leading trips to Israel for 10 years. I've been 15 times in 10 years. It's an amazing experience. Uh, I'm, in fact, I'm leading a trip to Turkey and Greece here in just two weeks, and I'm, I'm thrilled about going and really looking forward to being abroad. But I'll tell you, one of the things that I've learned over the years in traveling is the more I travel, the less and less I want to look like a tourist. Anybody, you guys ever feel that? You guys are walking through the streets of Paris, or you're walking through Washington, D.C., and you're like, I want to look like a local here. I don't want to look, I don't, I'm going to take this picture, but really casual, like I'm not trying to take like 20 pictures of it because I think it's amazing. I want, I, anytime I'm not in my home, I want to look like I blend in. Uh, I, I, I can't tell you how many times I go to Israel, and I walk in, and I've picked up some Hebrew over the years, and people just kind of expect me to be this like, you know, I'm, I'm fluent in, in, in Hebrew, and people, like, I have all these friends over there, and I'm like, oh, yeah, totally. And I have, like, I have like five words, you know, that I can speak, and I, I don't know anything more than really what everybody's already told me and what they could know, too. And so I want them to think that I am local enough to have been there so many times, but I'm, I'm really not. Um, and the irony of all that, I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this, but the more when you're abroad and you're traveling and you're, you're in a foreign land and you try to fit in, you try to not look like an American, it just doesn't work. People can spot Americans a mile away. Um, and for whatever reason, the more I try to, to blend in, the more I end up sticking out because I just, I just don't fit. And I think that's a good illustration for us as we start our talk tonight because I think life is like that a lot of the time. Um, we don't like being the outsider, ever. We don't like being in a group of people and not a part of that group of people. When you walked into the room tonight, maybe it's your first time at Renovate, and you're feeling like, I don't know these people here. I don't know what's going on with this chicken and waffles thing. Do they do this every night, or is it like every other time? But is this, do I fit here? I want to fit here, so what do I have to do? How do I have to change myself so that I can fit in with this group of people? Um, at first... When you go through that process, you think, well, it's about what you wear. You know, I was trying to think about how can I be hip and cool tonight, and I'm like, I don't know. I'm just going to wear what I wear to work. I just, that's, I can't, I'm just going to be me. I turned 40 on Saturday, so I got nothing left. I don't know. I mean, um, I got one foot in the grave already, so who cares? <laughs> uh, if, so a lot of times when we're trying to fit in, at first we think about it's kind of the outward stuff, like it's what we wear, who we hang out with, how we act. But we all know deep down inside that fitting in just isn't about mimicking behaviors. 
You know, it's, it's more about adopting a lifestyle, about becoming a certain type of person so that, so that I don't have to be faking it in the middle of a group of people that I want to be accepted by. I have to be natural. I have to be authentic. And then I know that I truly fit in, right? But to truly fit in, if I'm a foreigner to that group, to truly fit in, what does that require of me? It means I have to betray my heritage. I have to not be what I was. And I have to become what they are. And that's filled with all kinds of pressure. It's filled with all kinds of uncertainty. Uh, and it's not just about outward appearances, but it's more about the way I think. That's more about um, what I value, about what I believe about the way life should be lived. I mean, these are the things that I need to have in me if I'm really going to change and fit into a group of people. And if I stay somewhere long enough, if I were to stay in Israel long enough, for example, eventually that would start to happen. I would begin to think the way that they think, to value what they value. Whatever they consider the good life is kind of what would become mine. Maybe you've experienced this if you... Like, let's say you grew up in Texas, but you moved to New York City. Okay, or maybe you grew up in Michigan, but you moved to deep south Alabama. You understand this reality, that where we are always has an effect on who we are. That where we are always has an effect on who we are. So, Mike, one of the questions I want you to think about tonight is, are you aware of what kind of effect where you are is having on who you are. What I mean by that is this illustration that I heard a guy say one time, uh, there were two fish swimming along in the sea next to each other, just enjoying the day, just swimming along. And along comes this other fish, and he looks at him and he goes, man, the water's great today, isn't it? And the two fish keep swimming by and go, yeah. And then they're swimming by later on, and one fish looks to the other one and he goes, what the heck is water? And it's kind of one of those stories you go like, well, what do, you what do you mean by that, Matt? I don't understand what you mean. One fish was really aware of the water that he was swimming in and the effect that it was having on him. And the other fish had no idea what water even was. And what I want you guys, and what we want to talk about tonight, and I think what First Peter gets to, is ultimately, do you understand that the world that you're living in is having an effect on who you are? And the question is, is the world that you're living in having an equal effect on who you are as compared to what perhaps the Lord Jesus might have to say about who you are? That's difficult. It's difficult for us to understand. So, are you paying attention to how the world that you live in is conforming you into its image. It's training you. It's teaching you. It's telling you what's normal. I remember when the iPhone came out, I was working with college students, and I watched this phenomenon take. There are things in our lives that we do today that I didn't even think about 20 years ago. There are insecurities that I now have in my life that I didn't have 20 years ago because of that black thing in your pocket. And the world has not just told me, oh, this is a phone. 
The world has taught me how to use that phone, what things I should have on that phone. If I don't have them, I'm not normal. The world has discipled me just in that one area of my life. It's told me what to be, how to act. And when I step back away from that for a second, I go, whoa, that's kind of creepy. How did that happen? Everybody else around me was doing it. Nobody else was trying to force anything down my throat, and yet I'm all bought in to Instagram just as much as you guys are. Suckers. <laughs> You're all working for Facebook. You're not even getting paid. Okay? We're all swimming in the water. Whether we're locals or tourists, we're all swimming in water. The question is, do you understand how the water is affecting you? And what about those of us that believe in Jesus? It's hard enough living in a world that's trying to conform us into its image, but we also, for those of us who follow Christ, those of us who believe in Jesus as Lord of all, Christianity has something to say about how life should be lived, doesn't it? About what the good life is, about what normal looks like, about what it means to thrive in this world. And it's not exactly the same as the world around us. So for those of us who are followers of Christ, this is an especially important topic for us because the locals look at us and go, oh, tourists, Christians, they're weird, they don't fit in, they're not normal, they're walking around with their fanny packs, they got their Bibles in them and everything, they're just weirdos. Guys, you guys have been watching it. That divide between the locals and the Christians is getting deeper and wider and more tense. Christianity says is good for life and human prosperity, and what the world says is good for life and human prosperity are getting further and further apart. So the real question is, what does a faithful presence of people who follow Jesus look like in our world today? What does a faithful presence of followers of Jesus look like in our world today? That's the question. And I think that the letter of 1 Peter answers that question for us. That's a letter in the Bible. It's in your, in your New Testament. It's written by one of Jesus' disciples. His name's Peter, and he tackles this question. He wrote this letter back in the first century, but as we look at what he said, I think we'll discover that what he wrote in the first century is just as applicable now as it was back then. So I want to give you a couple of pieces of information about the book itself and the background of where it comes from, because it's kind of important to understanding these first 12 verses that we're going to look at tonight. There's some debate as to when the book was written. Some people say as early as like 45 or 50 A.D., which is really early. Some say as late as 70 A.D. But you have to understand that the books of the Bible were written in, in history, legitimate history that we have lots of other corroboration with. So Peter either wrote under the reign of Emperor Claudius, the Roman emperor, or Emperor Nero. So I want to tell you about two circumstances under each of those emperors that help you understand what he's going to talk about in verses 1 and 2. First, Emperor Claudius. He didn't like Jews. 
and he didn't like Christians. They were annoying, and they were getting on his nerves. So what Claudius started to do was he would do these random expulsions. He would just kick them out of Rome. Peter writes 1 Peter from Rome, likely to some Christians who were kicked out of Rome by Claudius. And um, they were kicked out of Rome into um, the eastern frontier of the Roman Empire. And I've got a map up here that I want to show you guys about where it's written. In verse 1, you will see that it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Five Roman provinces in Asia Minor. If you can see them there on the, on the map, Bithynia, Galatia, Cappadocia are all in modern-day Turkey. Okay? These were the eastern fringes of the Roman Empire at that time. Unsettled places where Rome wanted a presence, but they didn't have a lot of people that wanted to go there. So what do you do? You send some of your people out there that you don't really care for all that much. You settle that land, and then they have to deal with the locals uh, that don't like you. Okay, So that's what Claudius did to some Christians. So a lot of scholars seem to think that Peter knew these Christians, and then they were scattered out to the far reaches of the Eastern Empire, and Peter's writing this letter to them that's scattered through a region the size of California. Okay? A region that Paul never visited. There was not a church planted anywhere where Peter wrote this epistle. Okay? So that's one possibility for why he's um, written this letter. Okay? The other possibility is under the reign of Emperor Nero. Nero comes after Claudius, and he hates Christians even more. There are a lot of stories that seem to indicate that Nero because of his hatred of Christians, would take Christians, uh, arrest them, tear off their arms and their legs, impale them on a stake, cover them in pitch, light them on fire so that he could have a dinner party out in his courtyard. And it got worse after Nero, all the way through uh, Vespasian, even to Domitian. It is documented in sources outside of the Bible of Rome's continual and building hatred against Christianity and the mounting persecution against these followers of Jesus. So either way, this book is aimed at helping Christians learn how to be a faithful presence in the Roman world no matter what their circumstances. Even though the Roman world was trying to conform them into its image, Peter wanted them to not forget their heritage, to not forget who they are so that they can continue to testify about the availability of the kingdom of God for all people, even those people that wanted them dead. Okay? The thesis of the book is in chapter 5, verse 12. He says, I have written to you briefly, exhorting to you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Peter's heartbeat, the reason he writes this letter, is so that the, the followers of Jesus in the far reaches of the Roman Empire, who are aliens in the world around them, would remain faithful to who they are, even though, and who God made them to be, even though they weren't in their homeland anymore. That they, and the only way that they would be able to do that 
is by standing fast in God's grace. So let's take a look at what Peter has to say to these Christians about being a faithful presence, and then hopefully we'll be able to glean some principles for ourselves. So we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 12 tonight. I'm going to read the whole section. I'm going to go back through and walk you through um, uh, each section. I want to show you three things tonight. First, he want, Peter wants his audience to realize that their gracious alienation from the world is a blessing, and that that blessing shows them how to live faithfully. So let's look. First Peter 1, 1 through 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. These are the very words of God. So the first thing that Peter wants his audience to realize, number one, is their gracious alienation from the world. This is verses one and two, their gracious alienation from the world. He says that he's writing this letter to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. So let's talk about what this means. Though they have been rejected by the people of Rome, though their own countrymen have rejected them and sent them away, Peter wants them to understand that they have not been rejected by God. He uses this word, eklektoi, for elect. It means called out. To be elect means to be called out. They are, um, it means to be choice. It means if you go to the, to the, to the grocery store and you want to pick out an apple. You go and you, you look at it and you see if it has any bruises on it and you put it back. And you go and you look and you put it back. And you go and you look and put it back. But whichever one you pick, for whichever reason that you have, you pick. And once you have it and once you keep it, it is choice. You are communicating by choosing it, you are communicating its value to you. Okay, that you are chosen means that you are valuable. It's an important word in the New Testament. This, guys, this word in the New Testament is used 44 times. This word elect or chosen. 
The people of God have always been chosen out from another group of people. Okay? The people of God have always been chosen out from another group of people. Think about Noah or Abraham or the nation of Israel itself, David, the disciples, you, chosen out of the world that you are a part of to be separate from that world, to be holy, different, set apart for God's purposes. Okay? So first he wants them to know that they're chosen that they're his choice people. Even though they've been rejected by Rome, they belong to him. He also wants them to see the consequences of his choice. His choosing of them has alienated them from the rest of the world. To be chosen of God means to be separate from the world. To be his choice one means to no longer belong to the world. Um, The word here is peripedemos. It means stranger or alien or refugee. Okay, It's the idea of people who are living as foreigners in a land that's not their own. It would be like a Texan going to Colorado. Why would you stay there? It's too cold. Okay, You can visit for every once in a while. You can be a tourist in Colorado, but why would you not be a Texan anymore? No, we're always Texans. Okay? Okay. These people are tourists. They, they felt the pressure to fit in with the culture around them, but Peter didn't want them to be conformed into the image of their culture. He wanted them to remember their heritage. Have you guys ever wondered why Jesus is from Nazareth? Why it's Jesus of Nazareth? Because he was born in Bethlehem. Why is he called Jesus of Nazareth? Why does he live in Nazareth? I don't know if you remember, but the time when Jesus was born, there were a lot of babies being killed by the king because he, he knew, heard about this prophecy of, of uh, not wanting um, the prophecy to come true about the Messiah coming from Bethlehem. Do you remember this? So King Herod kills all these kids. Well, at some point in time, there was a group of people that moved into the Galilee region of Israel. And when they moved there, they named their town Netzareth. And the word Netzer in Hebrew means branch or shoot because there are a lot of prophecies about the Messiah that say and a branch shall sprout from the root of Jesse Jesse is the father of David David is from Bethlehem so Jesus goes to Bethlehem to be born and that's where he's born but he's known as being from Nazareth because they didn't want to live in Bethlehem because of the political climate of the day was hostile And they didn't want Jesus to be killed. So they lived in Nazareth. And the people who lived there said, I know it may look like we've disowned the fact that we're from Judah, Bethlehem. But we named our city Nazareth because we don't want to forget our heritage. Even though we're living out in a land that's not our own, technically, we still are from the land of Judah. We are a branch from the stump of Jesse. We haven't forgotten who we are even though we're living with people that are different from us. It's the same idea for us, and it's the same idea for Peter. He wants them to remember that they are strangers and aliens and tourists, and that's a good thing. The locals don't value the same things that they do. 
that creates conflict for them. It creates division, suspicion, exclusion, and eventually persecution. But Peter wants them to not change, to not be conformed to the world, but to remain the elect, the choice elect ones of God. So his choice also unites them with Jesus, okay? It says that not only are they elect exiles, but they have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, okay? His choice has brought them together with God. God the Father predetermined before the world was created that his spirit would come into the world and pick out of that world this choice group of people so that they would be a holy group of people who would live like Jesus. And in living like Jesus in the midst of a world that rejected him would become attractive because of their holiness. That they would live in such a way that would make the kingdom of God available to all nations because of the way that they did not conform to the world. And so God, in his foreknowledge, he didn't, go, he didn't fast forward into the future, figure out who would believe in him, then rewind back to the present and start out all creation. No, 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 no. God's plan meant that he sat down and he looked at your life before the world was ever created and he said, you, you're mine. And nobody can take you away from me. You. You're mine. Nobody can ever take you away from me. Everything that happens that, is, that identifies this group of people is nothing that they've done. It's everything God has done to them and for them. And that's their sense of hope and security in this difficult world that they live in. And fourthly, his choice defines reality for them all. God has initiated with them, for them, upon them. I know it creates a lot of questions that God has chosen me, that he's chosen me, but maybe he hasn't chosen someone else. I get it. I get that that creates questions for us. But can you get it through your head for just a second that God has chosen The fact that he's chosen me, when I know all the dark things about my heart that you don't even know, and all the things about myself that I'm ashamed of, and he chose me knowing that I would do all those things and be this way, I mean, that creates a whole lot of other questions for me too, but I, that's amazing to me. In a world that looks at me and values me based on my performance, God looked at me and said, no, I just want you for who you are and for who I made you to be. I can deal with your failures because I'm going to give you my son. I don't need you to be perfect because he will be. <sighs> Guys, that's a reality this world has no idea about. They have no idea about that kind of, uh, that kind of life. So the key idea for us here in this first one is that if we don't want to become like the locals, we've got to remember our citizenship. We can't become like the locals if we want to remember who we are in Christ, okay? So tourists always tend to envy the locals. Um, you never saw a local wishing they could be a tourist, right? 
I mean, you guys live in Fort Worth. When was the last time you walked around with a fanny pack and you went around taking pictures of downtown? I mean, you're like, you've been there, done that already. You did that when you moved here. You got your pictures of Sundance Square. You're there now, and it's like, eh, all right. It's there. There's fountains and lights, and Christmas tree's kind of cool. Christmas time, but other than that, it's like, well, when did a local ever wish that they were a tourist? Never. Tourists visit because there's something desirable about the place that they're visiting. It's easy to regard it as an ideal. And so when we travel, one of the easiest things we start to do is we find ourselves, ooh, I wonder what it would be like if I moved here. Hmm, I, I, could, I could build my house there, or I would live in this part of the city, or oh, no, 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 I would live in that part of the city. Oh, yeah, okay. I'm a downtown kind of guy. No, 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 no. I'm living out in the country. Oh, okay. We start to picture ourselves living in a certain place because it's easy to quickly forget the blessings and the, the joys of home when you're in a place that looks good and that everybody else says is good, right? Well, that's the idea here in the next uh, couple of verses, verses three through five, where he says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he goes on in verses 3 through 5, and then again in verses 10 through 12, and he enumerates the blessed assurance that these people have in the world. A blessed assurance that these people have in the, living, in the world. Look what they have. They have a living hope. A hope that is alive because Jesus has been risen from the dead, as opposed to the culture regarding them as atheists. Did you guys know that the first atheists were Christians? Romans called Christians atheists. Do you know why? Because they only believed in one God. They didn't worship the Roman pantheon. And they, the, the concept of being exclusive to only one God was so unthinkable in that culture at that time that they were regarded as atheists because they didn't believe in the gods. Okay? They have a living hope. Not a dead one that worships statues and idols, but a God who came to earth, who was the word made flesh, who died on the cross and rose from the grave for them. They have an imperishable inheritance. Though the culture of Rome keeps taking things away from them, they have an inheritance that will never perish or spoil or fade, and God is keeping it for them. Number three, they have divine protection. Though the culture continues to persecute them, take away their life, God will protect them, even if his protection means their death so that they can be reunited with him. God will see them through. They have unprecedented privilege. Guys, I know verses 10 through 12 sound weird, but basically this is what it means. Prophets and angels have been looking for centuries and millennia how God was going to take an unrighteous and unholy people and make them righteous and holy in a righteous way. And what happened at the death and resurrection of Jesus, that it happened, what, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years before this letter was written? They get to have what prophets had only dreamed about, what angels had only ever wished to see, they get to have. They have a blessed assurance. And so Peter, the only really imperative in this whole section is praise God. That's it. And the word for bless, the word for praise is eulageo. 
which means where we get our word eulogize. When we think eulogy, you think funeral, right? But a eulogy at a funeral isn't something where you're like, oh, we're so sad that he's gone. When you eulogize someone, you speak highly of them. You talk about them in such a way that's worthy of remembrance so that they won't be forgotten, and it's a way that you want everyone to think about them. So the imperative here is that when we think back on home, even when we're in a foreign land and we've been cast out by this nation that doesn't like us anymore and we feel like we're tourists and strangers in a strange land, we remember the God who called us choice and we know of all of the good things that he has done for us so that we can live and have life in his kingdom and we bless him, we eulogize him even though every time we do that, it separates us further and further in the world in which we live. So the key idea here is that if we don't want to become a local in this world, we must continue to proclaim the privilege that we have in Jesus. Okay? Because what we have in Jesus is not something that universal health care could ever accomplish. It's not something that everybody making the same amount of money could ever do. No law, no set of, you know, making sure that everyone's treated equally, no any amount of political correctness could ever make us have the kind of life that God has made available for humanity in Jesus. So we need to continue to bless his name and to tell everybody what we enjoy, even if that makes us look like we're tourists in a strange land, okay? So as a tourist, if I can remember the privileges of my home, it snaps me out of wanting someone else's. You guys ever go to camp when you were a kid? You're sitting there lying in bed at night because they put you to bed way too early. You're looking up at the ceiling. You're all on your sugar high because you had 12 popsicles that day from the snack shop and you're lying there looking at the ceiling, and I remember I was in, like, fourth grade. I still remember crying myself to sleep at night because I was homesick. I didn't get this whole sleeping in the woods thing with this guy and a bunch of these other kids in my cabin that I didn't even really like. I didn't even really know them. But I liked running around all day. The feeling of homesickness. I was in a place that wasn't my home. I was having a great time, but there I was longing missing, wanting my home. I never wanted camp to be where I lived. It was nice to visit, but I always wanted to come back. It's, it's, it's crazy how um, what we want changes when we remember who we are and what we have. And that's the last thing that he wants to encourage them, because things get tough for these Christians. If it was during the reign of Claudius, it was hard because they were expelled, but it would get worse during the reign of Nero when the Neronian persecution began, and it would just get worse and worse and worse, all the way up to the book of Revelation, when John writes to the churches in Asia and says, guys, be faithful to the end, even if it costs you your life. So that's the last thing I want to talk to you guys about tonight, faithful presence in spite of of the world, the faithful presence in spite of the world. It says in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith that's more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
it says, in this you rejoice in verse 6. What it means to be a faithful presence means you never stop jumping for joy. This word here in verse 6, rejoice, it means jumping for joy. Literally, like if you were to translate it in its literal sense, it means to exult. It means that you're so excited that you can't keep your feet on the ground. Okay? You get this at a sporting event or when, you know, uh, you're just super excited about something that happens to you. You jump. It just... What God has done for us, even though we're encountering persecution for it, still causes us joy. Okay? Christians have a joy that's not connected to circumstance. We have a joy that's connected to a God who is personal and powerful, and it's not connected to our feelings as much as it's connected to the reality that he is, and we believe in him. We don't need laws or social programs or social activism to make sure that our feelings are legitimate. But God, because God is who he is, I get to enjoy and jump and scream for joy about who God is, even when my life is bad, even when my circumstances are difficult, or even when life hits the fan. Because it does. Whether it's the tough stuff of life, um, the loss of a family member or the loss of a job or um, the ending of a relationship. Or if it's the hard stuff that comes from uh, being kicked out because you believed in Jesus, but standing up for your faith and you lose your job or you, you get kicked out of Rome because you didn't want to deny your Savior. Whatever those trials are, if those trials don't persuade us to become locals, which is what the trials are meant to do, the pressure of the world creeps in on you and it forces you and makes you want to become local. If they don't, if we remain faithful to Jesus, then that proves our faith is the real thing, that it's genuine, it's the real deal. And that kind of faith is able to sustain us through any kind of trial. Faith in socialism or tolerance, values that aren't personal and they're not powerful, they break they never worked perfectly. They, don't, they look good on paper and they sound good when somebody's given a speech, but ultimately they don't solve the problems of the world. And in fact, when the problems of the world get heaped on my shoulders, I feel hopeless. My presence, my faithful presence is contingent upon the faith that I have in something that is powerful and something that is personal. And it's something that can govern way better than a law or an ideal. It's God himself, okay? So they never stop jumping for joy, even when life hits the fan, because their faith is in God. They don't need sight for their faith to be real. They don't have to see God face to face in order to believe in him. They don't have to have empirical evidence in order to believe in him, because they have everything they need, because they have experienced him personally by his Holy Spirit. They have God's promise of resurrection, of inheritance, of new life, of fellowship. And that, with that, they can be at home anywhere they are. Even though they're foreigners, they can be at home anywhere because of what God has made available to them by his grace. So, at the end of the day, they keep jumping for joy until faith becomes sight. No matter how hard life gets on them, whether it's the tough stuff of life 
or the tough stuff of being persecuted for the fact that they're Christians, they keep jumping for joy because they have the salvation that God promised them now and the salvation that will come at the end of all things. They have it in full. So the key idea for this section is if we don't want to become local, then we have to stand fast in his grace. The only way that we can keep ourselves in the love of Jesus and not become like the locals and forsake what he's offered us and and take up a gospel of the world is only if we keep ourselves planted, not in what we do, not in how well we can fit in, but if we remember and believe in and embrace what God has made available to us through his son Jesus and his church. So I don't know where you are tonight. I don't know you guys very well. Obviously, uh, this is my first time to speak to you all. But I understand there's probably two types of people in this room. There's those of you guys that believe in Jesus and those of you that don't. If you're not a Christian, okay. What's your hope in, then, when life gets hard? What are you turning to when this world, the water that you're swimming in, is trying to make you into what it wants you to be? Who are you following that's more powerful and more personal? What are you believing in that's more powerful and personal than the God who created everything? I commend Jesus to you. If you haven't tried him, why not? What have you have to lose? But if you are a Christian, if you are someone who is a believer in Jesus and follows him, I think that this is a sobering introduction to a book that's going to be both life-giving for us and encouraging for us and also very, very, very difficult for us. Because the more we become like Christ, the further we get away from the world. So my question for you guys tonight is, where is your heart? Are you a, are you a tourist in this world wanting to be like this world in which you live? Seeing, ooh, I could live there. Is your heart being slowly and surely conformed into the image of the world that you live in? Are you wanting to look like a local? Or do you want to be distinct, set apart? Not so that you can be distinguished, not so that you can make yourself matter, but because you follow a God who is unlike this world, but who loves this world. And who wants to show this world life the way he intended for it to be lived. Not the way that the world thinks that life should be lived. Are you jumping for joy that you are God's choice man or choice woman? That he is set apart for his purposes so that the rest of the world can know what he's like primarily through how different you are from the world around you. So I asked the question at the beginning, what does a faithful presence of followers of Jesus look like in a world like this one? Men and women who stand fast in God's grace, no matter what. If where we are has an effect on who we are, then what are you standing on where you are so that you don't become conformed into the likeness of where you are? but that you remain who God chose you to be. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace, your generosity towards us that we don't deserve, that while we were sinners, you picked us up and you made us choice. You called us yours. And even though we live in a world that looks down on us, even though we live in a world that doesn't respect what we believe, that looks at us with a, a crooked eye. Father, we can't stop jumping in our hearts and in our lives over the reality that you are powerful and personal with us and that you are powerful and personal with this church and that you have called us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we could proclaim and make known to this world the reality of life, the way that you designed for it to be lived. So I pray for us, Father, that we would leave from this place remembering our citizenship, proclaiming our privilege, and standing fast in your grace. We ask it in Jesus' name.